the publisher came up with this really clunky subtitle. And I said, this is a terrible subtitle. Why are you doing this to me? And they said, because we're alerting your audience that this is the book for them. And I was offended at that. I said, this is a book everybody needs to read. And they're rolling their eyes like every author hasn't said that to them before. Most people very much overestimate, number one, how much an author earns. And number two, how many copies of books actually sell. They had published that year 3,000 different titles. Only 200 out of the 3,000 had even sold 2,000 copies. So writing books is not the path to financial success, but that doesn't mean you don't write them. Welcome to the Entrepreneur's Journey podcast, where we delve into the stories of successful entrepreneurs so you can discover what's possible. Today's guest is Tom Woods. Recently, I published a blog post and a podcast explaining how I haven't handled my own email in over 12 years. Now, after I released that content, I've had people come up to me going, what do you mean? How have you not handled your email? What, what, do you, what is that? How do you do that? Now, I've been a person who very early on realized that email is a huge time suck. Like you probably are now, I used to deal with all my email myself. I think most people on the planet still do that. Their email inbox is something they see as their own. They have to deal with it. I learned that that inbox, my email inbox, is the biggest productivity killer time suck. Not to mention it goes completely against my goal for the laptop lifestyle. If I want the freedom to travel to run my business anywhere, I can't be checking my email four or five, six times a day worrying about, you know, customer complaints or new jobs coming in. And that's what I used to do until about 12 years ago, I hired my first ever inbox manager. And that was a person who became absolutely vital to not just my business, but my life, it significantly reduced my stress. Because I think like most people, you're, you're probably getting up early in the morning and handling your email then and possibly spending one or two or even three hours, the entire morning can be wiped out. Just replying to messages doesn't move your life forward. It doesn't move your business forward. It's kind of like busy work. Or maybe you're coming home at night to the big pile of emails and you've got potential customer queries. You've got clients who are asking for things. These are important messages and you end up losing your entire evening when you'd rather be relaxing, spending time with friends or family or even watching Netflix, you know, whatever it is you want to do. But you've got this big pile of email that you know is not going to get smaller unless you go and deal with it. You know, the next day there'll be more emails coming in and the next day there's more emails coming in. So for me, I made sure that once I got rid of it, I never had to deal with it again. So I've had either one or two or even three people handling my inbox specialists for over 12 years now. And I'm very excited to announce as a special new sponsor of this podcast, I'd like to introduce you to inboxdone.com, which is a brand new service essentially offering what I'm talking about here, a dedicated email inbox manager that can become part of your team and really take over what is very likely the single biggest stress point time suck productivity killer in your business and your life, no matter what you're doing. So this person can do as much or as little as you like. They can potentially just come in and come up with some systems, some automatic replies, some templates, and they can just be there clearing your inbox, sorting things for you so you don't have to deal with it yourself. And you know, you don't have that scattered feeling when you look at your email or email can be taken off your plate completely. So your dedicated inbox manager will deal with every message that comes into your inbox 
books and also set up some really intelligent systems for doing things that maybe you don't do right now or maybe you, you kind of do. For example, do you have some kind of process for following up with potential customers? So people who show interest at buying your products or services, maybe just email in a question. Do you have a intelligently designed process for chasing them up over a period of weeks with several emails? And you know, are you doing that yourself right now? Well, imagine you've got someone who handles that. It's scheduled, it's part of their job to make sure that goes out in a strategic way. The same goes for dealing with potential cancellations or refunds. So if you have a membership site now or payment plans, this person can come up with a, a system for strategically handling those kind of queries to, to reduce your cancellation and refund rate. These are just a couple of ways you can actually increase your profits or reduce your losses with a really tailored, dedicated inbox manager. And this is actually, in fact, what we have in my business uh, right now, my information product business with uh, my blog and my podcast and all my teaching products. So if all of this sounds interesting to you, if you'd like to learn more about the service, go to inboxdone.com and you can find an application form there to apply to get your own dedicated inbox manager as well. Just a word of warning though, because of the personalized nature of this service, they can only take on a few clients each month because you do get your own dedicated inbox manager. So that person is specially trained and that takes time. So they have a limit to the number of people they can take on board each month and really it goes to the best applicant. So do a great job applying and obviously if you're a great fit for the service, you will get your own dedicated inbox manager and email could be taken completely out of your life and you'll be able to experience what I've experienced for a long time now, that sense of freedom, relaxation, the the idea that you you know you don't have to stress about this anymore. You don't have to worry about those emails sitting in your inbox. Not only that, you don't have to worry about whether you're doing a good enough job replying to those emails because you could be losing sales right now just because you're not chasing up in an intelligent way. So I encourage you to go check out inboxdone.com. I really recommend their services. Hi, this is Yarrow, and thank you for joining me today on this episode. So my guest today is someone who connected with me a little unexpectedly, I have to say. This is not the typical story from uh, my industry, my, the history of my podcast, or even how I've really you know, met people, because this is a different industry, and I'll explain that in a moment. So a bit of background. My guest today got in touch. I appeared on his podcast, which... As I just mentioned, it's not the typical kind of podcast I've appeared on. I'm usually on internet marketing podcasts, business podcasts, and, and my guest today runs a very popular podcast in a different industry. And then my guest actually went on, surprising me actually, to become an affiliate for the launch of my coaching program, Blog Mastermind, and came away as the top affiliate, also surprising me. So there's lots of unique ways we've connected, and I've gone on to learn that my guest today also has quite an incredible online business, which I believe is based around his podcast, but we're going to find out exactly what that is. So rather than me sort of skirting around the topic, let me just introduce Tom Woods. Hello, Tom. Yarrow, very glad to be here. So I've kind of given people the background of how we connected, but can you give us an introduction to you know what you're known for, what you do, and what your business is today? If you were to have asked me in junior high or high school, what I was going to wind up doing. Wouldn't have been any of this, that's for sure. Because first of all, there's no way I could have conceived of it. There was no such thing as the internet or podcasting. So I wouldn't even be able to put into words what I was going to wind up doing. 
I sort of emerged on the scene through writing books. I'm a historian. I have a PhD from Columbia University, and I've written a variety of books on all nonfiction on American history or sometimes economics. I wrote a book on the financial crisis of 2008, and over time, I found that the books had generated enough of an audience, uh, two of them became New York Times bestsellers, that between that and writing articles online, making YouTube videos that people tended to share around, gradually I realized that in addition to doing public speaking, which is the obvious next step after you've written a book, it occurred to me that I could function more comfortably if I did a lot of my work online instead of having everything I do be public speaking and having to fly all over the place all the time. It was not really conducive to raising a family. I have five daughters now. So what I eventually started to do was I created a digital product, which I can get into detail on that later. I became an affiliate for products that I like or use or support. And I started a podcast. And the podcast, again, built on my previous audience that I had established as an author, as a speaker, as somebody who used all the free avenues available to me, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, the obvious, the usual suspects. I built that into a podcast audience. So that's why I could get away with calling my show The Tom Woods Show. Now, almost none of your listeners will know who Tom Woods is, so you might think that's not a good podcast name. But for me, it was because it was a net where I was going to catch all the people who did know Tom Woods' name from all these other things, and they would know this is the thing now that you can listen to on a regular basis because I put it out five times a week. And that's become the pivot around which all of my work really revolves because, well, I mean, we can talk about how I monetize the podcast, but mm. these days, that's the main thing. If I were to drop everything else that I do and I did only the podcast, I would still be very comfortable. We should probably say what exactly your topic is, Tom. You've been hinting at it. What do you cover? <laughs> well, my podcast is a libertarian podcast. So a lot of times we'll do episodes from history. Like, for instance, this will be the centenary of the end of World War One. So we'll certainly have plenty to say about World War One and the end of World War One. So we do some history. We do some current events. We do some economics. But also we do some case studies. We do some interesting stories. We do, hey, look at this interesting inventor or look at this person with a fascinating new idea or look at this physician who has a cash-only practice and he's able to cut his costs 80 to 90 percent for his patients. I mean, the sorts of things that you don't hear about a lot, but that really are interesting and fascinating examples of just how people are taking the reins in their own lives and doing extraordinary things. So that's by and large what I do. But it's not called, notice the podcast is not called The Libertarian News Hour. It's called The Tom Woods Show. So there is a part of it that kind of just revolves around what I happen to find interesting, which is how Yarrow Starek managed to wend his way into my podcast because I thought what you were doing in showing people how they can have the laptop lifestyle and blog and actually make it pay. Well, I think that's quite uh, fits in very well with what I'm trying to talk about in general. So in you came. So I'm able to do a variety of topics. And even if occasionally I hit something that's a bit eccentric for most of the folks, they're pretty tolerant given that I've done over 1,200 episodes up to now and they haven't had to pay for any of them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I want to dive into your history and how you, ironic, your history of how you got into history. But I do want to clarify, since at the moment, libertarianism seems to be like a hot topic. It's a phrase I see mentioned more frequently on Facebook, but it also sounds very much like it's rooted in the world of politics. It's a form of politics or a movement or even a party within politics. Can you just explain, I know your podcast specifically isn't, as you said, named that topic, but you do call it a libertarianism podcast. So what does that mean really today? 
Well, I will say that although some of us do have an interest in politics, it doesn't have to be political. In fact, a lot of my listeners are just completely frustrated with politics, but they are interested in the ideas. Is it possible for society more or less to order itself? Um, in other words, can we imagine, in the same way that we can imagine the separation of church and state, can we imagine the separation of a lot of aspects of civil society from state and for the same reason? And how would that work and what would that look like? Is it possible for all of the relations we have with other people to be entirely consensual? And so that's what we do. We, a lot of times we'll take hard cases. And I even have one professor at an American university whom I bring on whenever there's some weird case. Like, what if Martians came to Earth and what rights would they have? And he's thought through all these sorts of things. So sometimes we do geek out a bit, just, again, trying to think about what would the world look like if all our relations were consensual. Because in other words, when you're raised as a kid, you're taught don't steal things that you know belong to the other kid and you know, that you have the right to use the thing, that, a thing that belongs to you. Just, just don't hurt other people and don't take things that belong to them. And we take that, that principle that we all agree on, but we take it very, very seriously and we want to apply it across the board. And in terms of politics, well, there is, of course, in the United States, a libertarian political party. And there are people in, you know, by and large, the Republican Party, a handful of whom will call themselves somewhat libertarian-leaning. So there's a political dimension to it, but a lot of times on my show, I would say 85 to 90 percent of the episodes really have nothing to do with this candidate or that candidate or politics. It's more, how can we get people to think in ways that are outside their comfort zone, ways that are original and fresh, you know, uncharted waters, get them to think about what a voluntary society might look like. We're really focusing primarily on ideas most of the time. Mm -hmm. and, and that really is the best thing for me because I don't necessarily want to have a lot of political candidates on my show because half of them are just going to come on and say what they think I want them to say and try and get donations from my audience. And then if they turn around and stab them in the back, then I feel responsible. Mm. I don't really want to have to be in that position. Yeah, I understand. So if we go back in time to Tom Woods prior to having five daughters, having an online business, and you said at the start you never saw yourself becoming what you do today. So if you're looking at your maybe your 18-year-old your self about to choose a, a direction next, whether it's university studies or starting a business or getting a job, what were you planning for your future back then? Well, I did think that I was going to go into math, actually. I was fairly certain of that, that I was going to do mathematics in one way or another. I'd been the captain of the math team, heaven help me, in high school. That's the path to popularity, by the way, <laughs> yeah. for anybody listening. Any young people, make sure you're the captain of the math team. Doors open for you, socially. <laughs> anyway, so I thought for sure that's what I would do. And by the time I got to college and I met the other math majors, I began to wonder if I was really cut out for it because in their spare time, I'm not kidding you, in their spare time, they would read books about number theory, things like that. Whereas in my spare time, I was filling in all the gaps in my general knowledge. I would read books on history and uh, related fields just because I thought that as an educated person, I ought to know these things and darn it, I don't. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I don't know if I'd be able to keep up with people who never stop if all they do is their field and they never, ever stop. And I wondered about that. It wasn't that I was getting bad grades or anything. I was just wondering, is this sustainable for me? And do I have the same fire that these people have? And then I began to think, maybe I don't. And then I said, you know, in the meantime, these other things I've been reading about turn out to be pretty interesting too, namely history. And so what I had been doing in my first year of college was I thought, well, let me get all these requirements out of the way. I'll take a lot of history and I'll knock out a lot of requirements. Well, then I realized, well, hold on a minute. Wait, 
If I major in history now, all these history courses I took now count toward my major, and I am now swimming in a sea of electives. So there are all kinds of reasons to switch over to history at that point. But I also felt like I like to be engaged in the world of ideas, and you can certainly do that more in the discipline of history than you can in math. So you graduated with a history degree? I did, and I went on and got a PhD in history. So I've gone through every hoop. I've written a dissertation. I've published history books for academic publishers and for popular publishers. I've published peer review articles and newspaper articles. Whatever there is to do, I've done it. (laughs) So does that mean your income source after you graduated and so on was primarily from academia? You were teaching and writing and professor, that sort of thing? That's right. I was in academia for about seven years, and I did make a reasonable income from book royalties. And that, by the way, is highly, highly unusual. Most people very much overestimate, number one, how much an author earns, and number two, how many copies of books actually sell. I think people think if you write a book, you're going to sell millions of copies. And almost nobody sells millions of copies of anything, certainly not nonfiction. Forget about that. You would be shocked at the numbers in terms of sales that are necessary to be a best-selling book. So, for example, my best-selling book probably has sold a, a shade under quarter million copies. Now, to people in my field who are in publishing, they find this astonishing. I mean, I'm, I don't have a nationally known name. I don't have a television or radio program. How have I done this? Whereas people, you know, let's say that I visited Christmas time in my family would hear that and say, oh, gee, I thought it was more. Wait, hold, hold on. You don't realize what an achievement this is. <laughs> this never happens. In fact, about 10 years ago, I was talking to somebody at, well, I, I guess I probably shouldn't say the publisher, but a very, very big publisher. And they had published that year 3,000 different titles. How many of those 3,000 books that that company published that year, how many of them sold more than 2,000 copies? Answer, only 200 out of the 3,000 had Mm. even sold 2,000 copies. So writing books is not the path to financial success. Now, for me, it was. I made a fortune, a small fortune, uh, especially with my two really hit books. The one I wrote on the financial crisis called Meltdown was also a big, big seller. But that doesn't mean you don't write them as I'm sure you would also want to note, they can open doors for you that aren't just financial or that are indirectly financial because they do open up media appearances and there you can promote other things that you do. Or they open up speaking engagements or consulting gigs or all kinds of things. And plus, having a book for what it's worth, gives you credibility that you don't have otherwise. So there are plenty of reasons to do it. Just go in with your eyes open and don't plan on you know retiring on the royalties. There, I mean, how many people are there out there who they went out and they got their book published and they still have 3,000 of them in the garage? Mm-hmm. Which is your first book, Tom? First book I wrote was called in fact, I don't think it's, I'm not sure it's in print anymore. It was Which is the, the one that's that sold a quarter of a million? The days. big one, yeah, that was my yeah third, like my first really big hit one mm-hmm. was called The Politically Incorrect Guide to American History. Now, if only I had had the marketing genius to have come up with that title and could take credit for that, I could not take credit. For, the publisher of that book approached me and said, we have a title for a book, now we just need the book. Right. And I heard that title and I thought, see, that title intrigues you. You think, well, what is this going to be about? So I thought, yeah, I would be crazy not to do this. If if I didn't do this, I would be like those record company executives who told the Beatles that groups with guitars were on their way out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was the dumbest mistake of my career. So I did do that, and that sold really well. Got in the top ten New York Times bestsellers. Was on the list for twelve weeks. Got me a lot of attention, favorable and unfavorable. Right. And that was also a lesson, by the way. If you do something controversial. You're going to have people who dislike you. And I genuinely, I was so naive in my early 30s. I felt like, 
Well, if people just look at what I've written, they'll see I'm sincere, I'm educated, I have sources for what I'm saying, and they'll at least respect me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, This seems so quaint that someone would believe such a thing. So I did take a lot of abuse, and I was wondering how much this would affect me. And then I realized that the people who love you just love you, and they're going to remember your name tomorrow and the next day. The people who dislike you because of a newspaper article they read about you have already forgotten who you are by the next day. Mm -hmm. So as a young kid, I was concerned that I got negative book review. You know what? People have so many concerns in their lives. The fact that you got a negative book review doesn't even register in the top thousand of things people care about. So true. It's hard to separate the ego from those the things, though. So can we paint a picture of your early 30s? It sounds like by then you've already had some success in academia. You're cementing yourself very much as a political historian, American history. Is that sort of the right subject there? That's right, yep. yep. And I'm guessing by then you're probably starting to make this family of yours, your five daughters, and you've met your wife and so on. Has the internet enter the picture at all? Have you, beyond writing books, has there been any inkling of starting a business yet, or is it still I'm an academic? Definitely not starting a business. I did realize the to me, the impact of the internet was it helped me sell books. That was as far as I could see. I couldn't see past that. But that's at least something. I mean, at least I saw, at least I understood that potential. Because although I you know, I didn't get on a lot of major media. I mean, I've been on television a bunch of times, and I've done a lot of radio, but I'm not a television personality, so I knew I had to use other outlets to reach people. So I could write on, you know, libertarian websites that had a, a large reach, or I could get my speeches recorded, put those up on YouTube. That's one thing I'm definitely good at, I will have to say, is public speaking, and I know that just from all the testimonies I get. And if I could put those on YouTube, people would find me organically. They're looking up some topic, and then I'm one of the recommended videos, and they watch, and then boom, they're with me forever. They're a goner. They love what I had to say and how I said it. And so I realized that YouTube, that was free. It, was, it boggled my mind that there was an outlet whereby I could convey my ideas for free. And so, but at that point, I still was not thinking about a business. That came only because of sheer necessity. In 2010, for a number of uh, family reasons, we had to leave where we were, and we moved to a place where I didn't have a regular salary. I was going to just be a freelancer. And there are a lot of great things about that, but there are a lot of terrifying things about it. I had to, again, go on the road a lot, or you know, I was doing different things to make money, but the problem was you never knew from – I'd have one month where I'd get a bunch of invitations – and I would think I better take every single one because maybe next month I won't get any. But then that, but then the next month would come along and I'd get a lot. And I just didn't know what the right thing to do was. And I was second guessing myself and I was making myself crazy. But even then, Yarrow, even then I didn't think about starting an online business. It was only when a friend of mine who is a genius marketer came up to me and said, what are you doing to monetize the audience that you've built up for yourself. These are people who love what you're doing. They want more of what you're doing. And I said, well, I have the Amazon affiliate program on my blog <laughs> you know, that brought in like $50 a month. And he's just putting his head in his hands like, oh my gosh, I mean, what are you, seven years old? Do I have to do all the thinking for you? And it was at that moment that I realized that if they like my books, maybe they'll like courses. And courses are a great digital product idea, especially if there's a recurring aspect. If I keep adding material on a regular basis, I can make a recurring membership site, and therefore I can have a more sedentary, relaxed lifestyle because now this can substitute for a lot of the income I had to bring in by flying all over the place. So before you talk about that very exciting topic of courses and membership sites, I I love that subject, as you know. I am curious, it sounds like you did not enter 
entrepreneurship or even digital selling of courses and so on with a strong marketing background, yet you had tremendous success selling books comparatively to most authors. Can we clarify exactly, I mean, the obvious question, how did you sell so many books, but also what did your online presence look like before you do what you do today? Because it sounds like you already had a blog to sell the books, you were getting into YouTube. So you obviously were at least aware of online media. You just hadn't connected the dots to build an entire platform online around your content. Is that correct? Yeah, that's about right. Now, in terms of how I sold a lot of books, well, look, I had a tremendous publisher that had a great marketing arm that got me booked on a lot of media. But the thing is, that alone is not enough just to get booked on media. You have to perform on that media. And I did really well, I have to say. And, and there was, I remember that one of the first TV programs I did was on Fox News. And I got into an argument with the host, one of the two hosts. And after it was over, I thought, oh, no, this is a disaster. I got into an argument with the host. And the publisher said, what is the matter with you? That's what you want, <laughs> because that's that makes interesting TV. If, you're just gonna, if they're just going to nod their heads at you the whole time, that's not interesting TV. And I realized, aha, <laughs> they kind of – I really thought I had made a big mistake by doing that. And they said, no, 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 that's what you should do. And they would say things like, look, you have to also remember there are a couple of hundred thousand books that come out every single year. You are – the competition you face is so immense as to be preposterous. You have to be not shy about promoting those books. So I did that. I would. I knew to mention the book, always mention the book or make a free chapter of the book available. So at the end of the interview, you can say, you can get a free chapter of the book at blah, blah, blah. So then they go, they have to enter their email address. Aha. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yep. And then you just follow up. Hey, do you like that chapter? Do you like that chapter? So things like that worked, but also it just became a matter of finding every outlet you could. Give a speech here. Inquire with C-SPAN if they'll do a book TV. C-SPAN has been so great to me. They've done book TV events with me at least half a dozen times. They're just wonderful people. By the way, i have to tell a funny story. I was at a book signing at a major bookstore in the United States, and I showed up to do the book signing, and they said, okay, here's your book signing, and C-SPAN will be right over there for your remarks. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm sorry, I beg your pardon? My publisher had forgotten to tell me that a television crew was coming (laughs) and that I was expected to deliver remarks. Well, no one told me that. I had to get up there and spontaneously speak for an hour with zero preparation. And it turned out that was one of the best presentations I had ever given because I was really on the spot and I had to deliver and there were no notes. You got to just fly blind. And from that moment on, I pretty much chucked my notes as a public speaker from that point on. But it really was a combination of, again, using every avenue at your disposal, building up social media, but also kind of trying to get into the heads of your potential readers. What pain is my book going to solve? I mean, that's, I mean, you know very well that when you're promoting a product, you have to think of what is the pain point? It's not so much, uh, here are all the the great things in my book. It's more, what is this going to do for you? How is this going to solve your problem? And books, the trouble with books is, unless these are books about how to cure a disease, chances are you don't really have a pain associated with U.S. history, right? Mm, right. It's very hard to think of what the pain point would be. So the way I would do it is I would say, look, I know a lot of you guys like me have unconventional opinions on a lot of things. And sometimes that's kind of cool. And other times it's really lonely. 
and you feel like you're the weirdo at the water cooler that you you show up at the water cooler everybody clams up because they don't want to hear what you have to say and or you know you find yourself constantly outnumbered and outgunned and i can give you information that'll at least you know get a productive conversation going with people and get them to think and you won't feel so isolated anymore so that's how I, I didn't say, oh, and then I've got a chapter on World War One, and then I have a chapter on the Cuban Missile Crisis or something. I didn't do it that way. I did it more of, I'm like you. Like, you and I are nerds, and we're weird nerds. We have different opinions from everybody, and sometimes that can be isolating. And I think this can help you break the ice a bit. That's not how most people sell history books, but no, it worked. No, so you basically sold history books as a tool for coming up with commentary, feedback, even a counter-argument to back up your point of view, which might be seen as a little bit unusual. And that's because your own background and your own point of view, like you said, you've gone to an argument on television. I guess I have to ask you this. What's an example of a point of view that might be considered more controversial that you and your readers, your audience have that, just to clarify for, for my audience? Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, there's two that kind of meld into each other. The Great Depression is a huge topic, of course, in U.S. history, and the question always is what caused it and then what made it go away. And on both of those things, my readers and I have views that are, well, becoming less unconventional now, but certainly 10, 15 years ago, they were quite unconventional. Because the normal, the traditional view is that laissez-faire, free market economics run amok caused an overheated economy, and then Franklin Roosevelt fixed it. But what we argue is that to the contrary, what we, if only we had had a free market in the 1920s, what had actually happened was that the Federal Reserve, the central bank, had pushed interest rates lower than they should have been. And this generated an unhealthy credit bubble that eventually burst. It wasn't that this credit bubble just spontaneously appeared from nowhere or was caused by greed. If it were caused by greed, we'd always have bubbles, right? I mean, why would there be a bubble at that particular moment is the real question you need to answer. And so we're making that claim. And then secondly, in the 1930s, you know, the U.S. unemployment rate was in the double digits all through the 30s. I mean, this thing just would not go away. And this was the first major downturn where the U.S. government really threw everything it had at it. And it just took so, so long to emerge from it. So we're arguing that that's not a coincidence that, uh, gosh, gee, they tried so hard and it just didn't work out, but their intentions were good. Uh, we're arguing that the sorts of things that they did actually tended to prolong it. And that's not what you're typically taught in a textbook. But in the professional journals now, among economists, you do actually see more and more saying, well, you know, on second thought, let's go back and look. Some of this stuff was counterproductive. So saying things like that, you're going after some of people's favorite presidents. You're going after the way they look at the world. That is controversial. I see. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I, I totally understand this idea of not being able to find a pain point or a customer avatar for your book's topics. I would actually almost say initial inspection, this is a form of education entertainment, but not, as you're describing it, a way to arm yourself for discussions, right? To back yourself up, which is a, definitely a different positioning. And I've seen that actually with quite a few of your pop-ups. I think one, I was just visiting your site before, you've got one regarding the current uh, gun debate and how to uh, present a, oh, a point yeah. of view on <laughs> that, right. right? That's right, that's right. Now, now by the way, sometimes my rhetoric... Now, in my books, I mean, it depends on. It, it actually depends on the environment. If I'm in a scholarly setting, I will blend right in. I'll be just like any other PhD on the panel. But if I'm talking to my natural constituency, 
I will be much more confrontational with my rhetoric because it's red meat. It gets their attention. They say, yep, this is my guy. So yeah, I could be quite provocative, but again, think about who your audience is. Let me teach another little lesson here. This, and this has to do with a book that was very successful and a book that was not so successful. And they're only one year apart. I wrote a book with a friend of mine. He's got a law degree and a PhD in history. And we wrote a book called Who Killed the Constitution? And that's a great book. I'm really proud of it. And it is the argument in it is to show that, uh, look, it's not like it's just judges that you don't like that cause the problem. There are, there are people who among conservatives who, who are part of the problem, and there are people among left liberals who are part of the problem. And so really there's a lot of blame to go around. So we went out and pushed this as a book that's for a book for everybody. Look, because it blames everybody. It's for everybody. And that book for everybody didn't sell to anybody, okay? Just didn't because we had not identified who the audience – of course, every author wants his book to be read by everybody. But let's face it. That's not going to happen. That will not happen. I mean unless you're Oprah, you don't have that kind of reach and that kind of command over people's time. So the next year – I wrote a book on the financial crisis, and I thought that the standard narrative of the conventional of the financial crisis was just cartoonish. That well, suddenly and without asking why at this particular moment, people just became greedy, and then that we had this crash. So I wanted to explain what was really going on. So I wrote this book. It was called Meltdown. Did very well. The publisher came up with this really clunky subtitle about how this is a free market look at the stock market crash and all that. And I said, this is a terrible subtitle. Why are you doing this to me? And they said, because we're alerting your audience that this is the book for them. And, and I was offended at that. I said, this is a book everybody needs to read. And they, you know, they're rolling their eyes like every author hasn't said that to them before. And they say, <laughs> yeah, we know you want that. In practice, your people will read it. Maybe they'll lend it to their friends if that makes you feel any better. But your people will read it. Our job is to find your people and match them up with this book. And this subtitle accomplishes that. And now if they had been nasty, they could have said, now listen, you tried it your way last year with your book for everybody. You saw what happened with that. So that I think was a very helpful point about the need to pinpoint that audience. And don't feel apologetic about that, that you're not reaching the whole world or you're not tailoring your message for the whole world. Because if you try that, you won't reach anybody. Better to reach your audience than nobody at all. Okay, interesting. So, Tom, if we're going back on to your life story here, and in particular your, your entrepreneur story, the books you clearly have honed your skills at marketing. You're getting some an audience built. You, you're growing an email list already. You're growing a YouTube following. So, when you reach this point where you're going, I'm going to sell courses. I'm going to try and create a stable, dependable income stream. So, I'm not reliant on speaking gigs or whatever freelance work you were doing at the time. What did you know and what did you not know about what it would take to make that work? Well, I knew, first of all, that I would need to bring other people on with me. I could have done it entirely on my own, but I wanted to have a variety of offerings. And yeah, I'm reasonably knowledgeable about a number of things, but I'm not an expert on everything. So I brought in people who were experts in other fields, in economics and in history and in philosophy and even now in literature. And I said, you know, let, let's do this as a joint venture, but it's going to be pitched it's going to have my name on the product, and I'm going to do the marketing. You know, I'm going to keep most of the money because that's the arrangement. But you guys are going to do very well. And indeed, they have. We're going on now uh, the sixth year that LibertyClassroom.com has been in existence, six and a half years almost now. And it does very, very well. Now, one thing I didn't know 
and by the way, the thing, the actual sitting down and preparing all the courses and making the videos and all the recommended readings and everything, oh my goodness, was that a bear. <laughs> oh <laughs> my gosh, would I not want to repeat that? But I just knew this had to work. This had to work. So, And it was a huge investment out of the gate. These are all academics I'm employing, and they can't spare months of their time for no immediate return. I can't just say, I'll give you some royalties. What if by some fluke there were no royalties? So I had to pay them up front. And then I pay them a percentage after that. So it was a lot of, I mean, it was probably 50 grand out of my own pocket to start with, which is not a lot of money to some people. But at that time, I was still just an academic, basically, a freelancing academic, which is even worse. So that was a lot of money to me. So I knew I would need to do that. But what I didn't know also early on, though, was the need for a, let's say, a mid to high ticket offering and that that is really where the money is made. I had a one-size-fits-all membership, and that was it. I had no sales funnel. I had nothing beyond that. And I could have had a sales funnel. I could have said the upsell could be transcript booklets for all the courses. You know, you can Mm. just read them and have – you know, there are a lot of ways I could have upsold that. And by the way, I am totally pro-upsell. There's nothing wrong with upsells. If (laughs) if you don't like them, don't buy them. But they can if they're – What was the price, sorry, Tom, of that membership? The price was $99 a year initially. And you, so it sounds like you built it all. You hired some of your academic friends to create additional materials for it. It sounds like you had, I'm guessing, tech people helping you create the membership area, uploading right. your videos, getting the payment gateway, all that technical stuff done. Was the plan, before we you know, talk about the mid-range products, was the plan just send an email to my email list and say, hey guys, I've got this new training membership area. Do you want to join? Was that your, your kind of strategy? It was. Now, when I say that by that point, I had kind of a small list because even those free chapters, the list was being built by my publisher rather than me, unfortunately, but at least they were following up and at least it was something. So I didn't have as big a list as I have now, but yeah, I knew I would use that. I would primarily use my Facebook following because Facebook ads have actually worked very, very well for me. So I would use that, you know, friends could help promote it. All my faculty could promote it. And so it did very well when we first out of the gate. I mean, it was just it was doing crazy well. And then plus we also, were, we once a month we would do a live session where we would be on the screen live with you because the other rest of the courses are on demand. But we would come on and take questions in real time. And it was a really great product. But eventually I added, I have three membership levels now. And each level gets, you know, subsequent level gets you more benefits. But I have a 497 level that when I have a Black Friday deal every year, that thing, when I make a, give a discount for that once a year, that thing sells so insanely, I almost didn't know what to do. I just couldn't believe that this was my life, that so many sales of that thing came in. So I would say, first of all, don't feel like you can't start until you have a whole funnel in place. Get your product up there, get your landing page, give away or sell that product, build your list and go right away. Then later you can get into fancy funnels and stuff like that, but at least get started. Because I'm glad I got started. I'm glad I didn't wait three extra years until I got my funnel in place. At least do something. Can we talk about those three extra years? So you go out the door, you've got a product, you've got books, you're building an audience. It sounds like you're also starting to grow your own email list, which I'm assuming is sort of coming together because you're doing the YouTube videos. We haven't even mentioned a podcast yet. That's obviously coming up at some point here. When did it turn into, or how did it get to what it is today? Can you bring us through those, those remaining years? Yeah, sure. Because then in this, on the side, I worked on yet another project, which was, now Liberty Classroom, the idea behind it is, it's kind of meant for adult enrichment. And I know there are some homeschool families that use it, but it's mainly aimed at adults who just want to learn a little more in their spare time. 
But I did actually work with a well-known politician in the U.S., Ron Paul, on a homeschool program, and I created some courses for high schoolers for his homeschool curriculum. And so I created probably 400 videos, which is an exhausting thing. It took me two years from covering Western civilization from antiquity all the way up to the present, and then I did a course on government as well. So it was the most overwhelming project I've ever undertaken. So that generated some income, but it mainly generates it through the affiliate program because it's $250 a year. I get a 50% commission, and I set up a landing page. And here's an example, I think, of a successful landing page. If you look at ronpaulhomeschool.com, that's mine. That's not theirs. That's my landing page. There's only one thing you can do on that page. Click to join, and it'll click you through with my affiliate link cookied in there to the sales page. I give bonuses away. So this is how I have done really well as an affiliate. I give complimentary bonuses. What do you think I give these kids as a bonus? I give them membership to Liberty Classroom as a Mm -hmm. bonus. Why not? I already have a digital product with additional courses in it. Why not include that? I send them one of my books autographed. I created an extra course just for people who join using my link. So I do that sort of thing. And also I like the headline on that page because again, As you say, I don't have training in marketing, but I've learned I'm a voracious reader and learner. And I think 10 years ago, my headline would have been something about what a great homeschool curriculum this is. And that's not what I did. I thought, what is the pain point here? And for a lot of homeschooling families in the U.S., the pain point is my house is a wreck. My kids are running amok. I can't keep up with anything, and I'm losing my mind. And so my headline is not, hey, here's a really great homeschool program. It's If you're a homeschooling parent, you're probably working too hard. That's my headline. And then I get into, you know, hey, your kids are going to get an outstanding education and they're going to learn how to start a small business and they're going to get an entrepreneurial angle on things. That's all in there. But the thing that catches their eye is I'm going to save you a lot of hours because this is a self-taught curriculum. And so learning to find the pain point and just kind of rub salt in it and agitate it a bit and then say, but we've solved it for you. That, I'm telling you, living proof, that works. (laughs) So in other words, I've branched out into offering other things. I've learned how to do well as an affiliate. You mentioned my podcast. I'll say that as an affiliate, one thing I do on my podcast is um, I realize that anybody who's smart enough to learn how to listen to a podcast is at least potentially somebody who might want to start a blog someday or might want to start a website someday. And so I'm an affiliate of Bluehost, a web hosting, And I say to them, all right, if you start, if you get your web hosting through my link, I'll do a bunch of things for you. I mean, I started a Facebook group, private group, just for people who use my link. And it's a mutual help group. So if you ever have trouble, and you will, you've got people there who want to help you. And it's a great community. I've got hundreds of people in it. Or I will publicize your, I mean, the real problem is you start a blog, nobody visits. But what if I told my many listeners about your blog I bet you I could get you a boatload of free targeted traffic, which is worth its weight in gold. And so I have a couple of other benefits as well. So, of course, people think, well, why would I do anything other than join through Tom's link? Because, yeah, that's the biggest pain point when you have a blog. Where's the traffic going to come from? So I offered that as a bonus. And Bluehost loves me. 
you know, I mean, they sent me the most beautiful wine basket with gifts <laughs> last year at Christmas time. I do really well, but I feel I feel really good about it because it does help me and it does help them, but it helps my listeners so much because it gets them over a really big hurdle. So again, I focus on what's the pain point. It's I went to all this trouble and nobody's visiting. Okay, so in the sort of last five, 10 minutes we've got, Tom, can you give us a summary then of, of what your business looks like today? It sounds like it's a podcast, it's affiliate marketing, it's books. I'm sure you're still doing a bit of speaking, other channels like social media, Facebook, YouTube. And you mentioned off air earlier that you've just hit the seven figure mark. So this has turned into a fairly big business as well. One thing we haven't really talked about here, and if you could answer, I guess, all in the one answer, how are you getting traffic? Where? What is the most successful traffic source for you? I, I thought it was your podcast, but it sounds like there's a lot going on here. So maybe give us an overview of how your business works today and, and how big is your team? Is I've only ever heard of Tom Woods so far. Is is there a team behind you as well? All right, boy, these are these are juicy. All right, the podcast really is where everything else kind of comes from. So I build my list and I to the list. A lot of times I'll promote the show or I'll promote different things that I'm working on. But then the show promotes the email list. You know, It's one of these things where everything is working together synergistically. The podcast, I do have some sponsors, but the sponsors are like earning me money that, you know, in case my kids need an emergency surgery or something, I'll, at least I'll have that. It's not like um, if that were to go away, I would be destitute. It's not, I, would, I do not ever want to be in that position vis-a-vis sponsors. So I've got that I do a once a week podcast that it would take too long to get into, but in that podcast, we've actually we actually do an annual cruise with our listeners. Wow. And that actually does quite well too. You don't really need that many people on a cruise. I mean, last year we had probably about 125 people, and that was profitable for us, quite profitable, but also just a wonderful time for everybody. I mean, everybody enjoyed it. So there are a lot of different ways that I'm figuring out how to make this work, but the, the podcast is the key thing. Now, in terms of traffic, yeah, the podcast drives traffic to a lot of what I do. But then the question becomes, how do you drive traffic to the podcast in the first place? And to some extent, you can do that by leveraging the audience of your guests because your guests promote the episode. Some of their listeners listen in. Some of them become permanent listeners, and that's true. I have a lot of guests who don't really have an audience to speak of, so that doesn't always work. But you know, you just have to be constantly on the ball. I mean, I'm promoting free eBooks all the time on current topics of controversy. And the ebooks get people on the email list, and the email list alerts them about the podcast. So these days, if I'm on a show, I don't necessarily say, oh, go to tomwoods.com, because they'll get lost. There are a million links there. You know, Who knows? what? The, maybe they'll listen to an episode, never come back. The real thing is I want to get them on my list. And even if you know only a small percentage opt in, well, the fact that they opted in means they're a good lead to have. And then I'll let them know about the podcast. So that, that's generally how I've been doing it. Now, in terms of a team, I do have a team. Well, for one thing, I've been using your service, your inbox done service for my email, which helps me manage email. I have a full-time assistant who books people for the show, does customer service stuff for my products and helps negotiate speaking engagements and things like that. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to nickel and dime people on money for I don't want to do that. Let him do that. <laughs> but I have an audio guy who does my audio. I have uh, one or two tech people when something inevitably goes wrong and I can't even speak the language to figure out what the problem is, those people jump in. I have a transcriptionist who transcribes every single episode, and I give that away as a premium to people who financially support the show. 
So yeah, I've got a pretty decent team, that's for sure. And they're just top-notch, super reliable, wonderful people. And then now and again, I need a freelancer for a small job, and I'll do that. Uh, oh, I have a graphic designer now who will do quick graphics for me. But when I need just something super fast done, I can go on one of these amazing freelance sites all over the world. In fact, last year it was Thanksgiving and I needed something done for the next day for Black Friday. And I thought, I don't want to make some poor American work on Thanksgiving for my stupid (laughs) project. So I went on freelancer.com, which is almost all foreigners. And I had somebody from Egypt who, you know, they're not celebrating Thanksgiving. It's just another day for him. And I felt a lot better doing that. And he did my project, you know, in like an hour and it was all set. It's amazing. I mean, it really, the world we live in is just to be given thanks for every day. (laughs) I love that. I love the interconnectedness of the internet. Tom, one more question before we wrap it up. What is a day in the life like for you now? It sounds like you're at home with your kids. It's I guess I don't know where exactly you are in the States, but it's going to be Florida. Like Florida. Okay. So you're sort of mid-afternoon. How do you live your life right now? What is what is your average day or average week? Well, I do my podcasting recording almost ex- exclusively in the morning. And then I'm typically doing my I have two email lists because I have one that's you know for libertarian listeners, and the other one is for IM, is for internet marketing for people who kind of want to do what I do, and I give them a lot of tips and product recommendations and bonuses and things like that. So I have two email lists, and I try to mail them. Now, with five daughters, it's not always possible, but I should try to email those lists uh, once a day. And it sounds like a lot, but it works because even if people unsubscribe, well, then you're getting down to your core people who really love what you're doing, who when they see your name in the from line, they're going to open that email. That's really where you want to be. So in the afternoon, I'm doing emails. And then if I have, like right now, I went out and swam with the kids. It was about, uh, let's see, one in the afternoon. I went swimming with them for about 45 minutes. And then I came in here to talk to you. So it's very, very flexible. I can do things when I want. On the other hand, there are times when there's a real rush. There's some big project going on. I got to work late at night. But you know, I can work from anywhere I want to, and I work with people I respect, and I get to talk to interesting new people every day, and I have people who don't like what I do, and I understand that. It goes with the territory, but I have so much support out there from wonderful people who send me such wonderful testimonials every day about how I've helped uh, change their lives, and you know, either in the way they think or just the other day I had a musician. I'm getting this guy on my show. I had a musician write to me. I mean, musicians oftentimes struggle to make an income, or, and music teachers in particular. And this guy said, thanks to you and the marketing side of what you teach, because i that's why I had you on, Yarrow, because I also do a little bit of that on my show. He said, thanks to you, I now have a million views of my guitar lessons, and my business is just running like crazy, and I have you to thank. And he said, I'm going to be sending you money every month as long as I live. <laughs> well, that's not entirely necessary, but I appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> All right. So, Tom, if people want to check out all the different things or maybe the top three of your your websites, your online presence, where should you send them to? All right. Let's see. Well, let's do tomsfreebooks.com. And those are controversial, I warn you. But then where would the fun be in life if, if we didn't do that? So tomsfreebooks.com would be the first one. Libertyclassroom.com would be the second one. And I guess I would say, oh gosh, I'm going to kick myself after this one that I did the wrong thing. What would this? Let's see. I already said RonPaulHomeschool.com. So let's say uh, the third one would be, yeah, let's just do that just to make it easy. Uh, RonPaulHomeschool.com. Because if even if you're not interested in homeschooling, I think that's a great example for people who are listening who are marketers. That's a great example 
of a well-laid-out, attractive, and effective long-form landing page. I use uh, – in fact, it's an Australian company. I know that you, I don't know, if, are you from Australia? Yes. You're not there now? Yes. But yeah. yeah. There's an Australian company called Studio One Design that I've used for so much of my stuff. And they laid out that landing page for me. And it is such a beauty. So it's interesting just as an example. And I can tell you from experience, that landing page converts. So it, maybe it'll help somebody. And of course, you happen to have TomWoods.com as well. For uh, how your... did I not mention TomWoods.com? <laughs> Tom well, actually, Tom'sFreeBooks.com redirects to a page on TomWoods.com. Correct. So that would have gotten them there one way or the other. Yes, but that, that See, is I'm your... still not perfect. I still need to be coached now and again. <laughs> well, I can say it's impressive that you, you know, there's probably a few other Tom Woods in the world. So congrats on getting your domain name as oh, well. Oh, so. it cost me, <laughs> but I got it. <laughs> okay, awesome, Tom. Uh, any last words before we wrap up the show? Well, just my last words actually would be to say thanks to you for the stuff that I've learned from you. I mean, I read Blog Profits Blueprint, well, I guess probably in early 2016, and that was helpful to me too. It got me out of some mindsets that had been wrong for me, like about what works with a blog and what should you be aiming for in terms of where your your income should come from. Because I too at one point thought, well, you just get a lot of traffic and you just paste a lot of ads on your site and you just hope for the best. And that's really not the long term. I mean, unless you're going to get 300 million visits a day, that's really not the avenue to take. And so it really helped get me on the right path. So I'll just say I would just end with a thanks to you. Oh, I appreciate that, Tom. That's, that's a nice way to end. And, and thank you for coming on my show. I'm so glad we could get a hold of you and uh, hear your background story. I, I love the fact that you've kind of taken a topic that I haven't heard of much all the way to the point of having a full-blown information publishing teaching business plus a cruise just to make it a little more interesting and that i think should give people hope those who are listening in who are thinking well i can only make money by teaching how to make money or something like that where you've done it sort of combining history and politics and i know as a coach people have come up to me and asked i love this subject about history and, and how do i make money from it on the internet and i've always gone well I'm actually not sure. It's a, that is a tough one to monetize. So I'm just quite grateful to see your example in this space. You're an academic who's leveraged your knowledge using the internet, using what my world is all about, information marketing, to build a seven-figure business. So congratulations and thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, this is Yarrow. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Entrepreneur's Journey podcast. Now, if you're interested in following in my footsteps and becoming a podcaster, and in particular, you're focusing on conducting interviews with interesting and smart people, then I have the perfect program for you. It's called Power Podcasting, and it's a short course I put together to essentially teach you how to conduct effective storytelling interviews and get all the amazing details out of your guest so you can create very powerful podcasts just like the one you listen to. It doesn't really matter what topic you're covering or what type of guest you're inviting onto your show. My Power Podcasting course will teach you how to conduct the interview, what kind of questions to ask, and also how to use that podcast to ultimately grow your business, which means getting new followers, building an audience, and even using it to sell your products and services and also to create audio products. So you could in fact sell your podcast, make money directly from audio content you create. To learn how to do this, you can sign up for my short course at power-podcasting.com. That's power-podcasting.com. And I can't wait to see you inside that program. 
Here's a sneak peek for the next episode. The more you try and do, the less you get. The less you try and do, the more you get because you do one or two things really, really well. I wasn't keeping things simple. I wasn't getting leverage because I was trying to do it all myself. I did the hiring of the staff. I did the organizing of the staff, the paying of the staff. I did the marketing to find the customers. I was wearing all the hats. And it wasn't until I really started to understand the importance of getting people on board that I started to actually finally get the freedom I was looking for. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur's Journey podcast, the original entrepreneur interview podcast established in 2005. For more episodes, head over to ejpodcast.com. See you next time.